You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Mail Podcast with Clark and Jace. This is episode number 77. If you're new to the show or whether you've been listening for a while, we appreciate you tuning in to the podcast. On this podcast, we share the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their portfolio allocations. Our hope is to bring these stories to you and help all of us learn about how these millionaires have achieved success. A special thanks to Equity Multiple for supporting the show. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally manage commercial real estate and create a stronger, more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. Tell them Clark and Jay sent you. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, please reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'll jump on a call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategy. We partner with a couple groups that have a long track record of success and great returns. We have opportunities available now for both accredited and non-accredited investors in different locations throughout the country. On last week's episode, we featured Scott. Scott is an attorney. He has a net worth around $7 million dollars. He invests in his business and real estate and is on track to have a $100 million net worth. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to unveil your allocation and story and help others learn about your investing mindset and your success. This week, we have an episode with a guest. His name is Damian Lupo. And without further ado, let's get right into the episode and let Damian introduce himself. Damian, do you want to just give us a little bit of backstory of who you are, where you've come from, and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. I, so background, I came I came from Alaska. I, I was literally the last job I had up there was dodging polar bears in the Arctic Circle. And that was, I mean, that's kind of how I started. I ran out of the polar bear terrain, started doing entrepreneurial ventures in, in the, the lower 48, as we call it, because when I went to college after Alaska, they threw me out because I started a bookstore. So I just basically don't fit inside the normal systems. And uh, I ended up going in and doing some insurance sales. And, and ultimately, that got too boring. And I thought it's too small. So I went and started doing real estate investing. And because I thought, this is cool. I see Donald Trump making a billion dollars. And this is like pre-president. And so I wanted to be that guy. And and so I started going out and doing things basically just off the cuff. Because at 20 years old, I was invincible and naive. And so I thought I could build the Great Wall of China in a week. So I went out and tried. And, and that just led to a whole bunch of crazy adventures building up a massive portfolio, losing a portfolio of 20 million bucks and and reinventing my entire life. So that's sort of the big compressed backstory of of what led me to where I am today and what I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. So so let's just rewind there just a second. Let's just skimmed over the fact you went up to net worth of 20 million dollars, essentially lost it and, and now where are you today after building everything back up? So when when I built the 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 whole uh, the whole thing. I had a lot of zeros in my bank account. I had millions of dollars, and my ego was bigger than the bank account. 
what's happened now is there are zeros in my bank account. My ego is totally different. And, and so as much as I've built the wealth, the financial wealth back again and have gone back into you know, the, the idea of being a millionaire with the numbers, yeah, it's there. But the, the driver isn't more money. The, the driver now is more impact because back then, $5 million was like, eh, interesting, but I want to go for a billion. It was never enough. And that's the difference now. What's not enough to me is the impact. I want to touch more people and get and break the financial bondage from more people. That's the focus. And the money tends to be a side effect of that intention versus saying, how much can I get from people? Yeah. So what's, what's your impact goal now? How many people are you trying to really impact? What's your kind of mindset towards that? So, so I have a, a similar thing I heard from Peter Diamandis and he said the new, the new version of a billionaire is a person that has impacted a billion people. And so I say that's, that's awesome. And that's more in line with my philosophy and who I am spiritually. My, my actual mission is to free a million people from financial bondage. And I know that that's a realistic number and it's, and I'm, I'm on track to do that because of the tools and the work that I do and being vulnerable to people to where they can say, Oh, you know what? Somebody else is on this journey of pain. And it's not just me. And maybe I can do better because somebody else has too. And they've gone through the struggle. So I know that there's that ability to go from where I'm at to that million. And the great news is it's not like a success moment where I say, good, I'm done. This is part of a lifelong journey. It's it's the process of mastery and it's being on purpose that allows me to stay there and not worry about that number so much. It's mostly just figuring out how I can do as much as I can for as many people as possible before I stop breathing. So how are you doing that? Is it, is it resources? Is it coaching? Is it How are you going about that for people that maybe don't know, aren't familiar with you? So the, the primary focus that I have is, is on giving people control of their retirement. And most people have their retirement money, their retirement planning on autopilot. They've handed over and they've really abdicated responsibility for it. So I give people a tool to where they can take control of that retirement money and do what they want, which quite honestly scares a lot of people because they're used to just handing it over. And so I, I give them that tool and then I do a lot of work with people on their psychology because truthfully, the, the returns that we make in investing or the actual success we have is 80, 80 to 85% psychology, 10% the system, uh, or, or sorry, 10% the actual risk exposure, and then 5% is the system. So I spend a lot of time with people on their psychology and, and working through the, the muscle building. It, a lot of people think that that financial freedom is about cash or it's about cash flow. And they say, yeah, if I have enough cash flow, I'm free. And I say, that's wrong. And they say, why? And I say, because I could hand you an apartment right now that was giving you $10,000 a month and you're never going to feel safe because you don't know how you got it. And if you lost it, you wouldn't know how to recreate it. So the idea is to help people build their confidence muscle, much, much like a trainer would say, come to the gym and I'm going to help you build your muscle. Once you've done it, you'll have the confidence to recreate it. And that's what freedom is, the confidence. Yeah, I think it's confidence within yourself, right? I mean, it's doing something that you say you're going to do and building that confidence and kind of building that report with yourself so that when, when something challenging comes, you can say, hey, I've, I've done this or I can deal with this or, you know, this isn't something new. So how do people go about building that? Where do they start? Well, they, they start with getting around the right people. I mean, this has been said a lot of different times by a lot of different people in different ways. But the truth is we are the average of those five people that we spend all our time with. And we have to be really conscious about the honest understanding of where we're at, both financially and environment-wise. So the, the first step is, is acknowledging the people that are around us. And this is really painful for a lot of people. I get pushback on this instantly from most people, especially the Midwesterners. And I love my friends in the Midwest, but the problem is they're addicted to their families and they won't let go of some of the bad crabs that are trying to pull them back in the box. And so the first, the first step is saying, okay, 
if you want to if you want to stay where if you want to go somewhere else you're going to have to have some different influences and so we start looking at where people are spending their time and then what their habits are and i can tell you everything about your habits and what you value based on your bank account and your calendar so we look at those and this is brutal work i mean this is the stuff that reveals who people really are you can say one thing but those things don't lie bank statements and calendars do not lie so we start with that and we get to the truth and then we start molding it Hmm. So before we keep going on that, I want to keep going on mindset, but but let's go back to this story just to provide kind of an overview for people of how you built this portfolio up to 20 million and then and lost it. So how did it all begin? And I know most of it was single families. And so maybe just give a, a couple minute breakdown on that story. So it really started a buddy of mine and I both read Rich Dad Poor Dad in 1999. And he said, I found a house and I said, cool. And he said, well, I, you, I want you to be my partner. And I said, why? He said, I don't have any money. And I said, well, I have a visa card. So I used my visa, got a cash in advance, bought this house and decided I was a real estate investor because I had a rental property. And then I just learned by basically being in the middle of it. I was electrocuting myself, trying to figure out wiring. I was falling off roofs, figuring out roofing, uh, flooding the house. Like, you know, I was passing out because I didn't know to open a window when you paint. And <laughs> I, I basically was just learning. You know, it was like trial by fire. And when I did that, I thought, okay, now that I've, I'm in this thing, it's like when you put money into something, you tend to pay attention. And I, I think that's why uh, I, I suggest to people, if they want to understand cryptocurrency, go buy $100 worth of Bitcoin because you'll actually pay attention to it a little. I just went and started going to seminars and listened to what people on the stage said. And then I just did what they said instead of challenging them and saying, I'm, I'm smarter than you guys. And, and when I did that, I was able to make progress. It wasn't just going to a seminar and listening and getting smarter. I was actually implementing. And so I was building that muscle. The, the problem is I wasn't acknowledging reality for about five months. And so five months in, in May of 2000, I looked at my, my personal financial statement, which I got from the game cash flow that Robert Kiyosaki made. And I realized I was 30 days from bankruptcy. And I didn't realize that until I acknowledged the numbers, which is why I always start people with their numbers. And I, I looked at that and I said, oh, crap. So I need to actually do something different. Let me return the phone calls of all these people that want to do business with me. I ended up doing that. I bought eight houses that month, filled them up with, with people that were renting them. And I said, okay, well, you know what? If I can do eight this month and I have no idea what I'm doing, I bet you I can do a lot more. And that led to 150 houses over the next three, four years. So how did it start initially? You had the Visa card and cash flow from there. Was Did you guys save up money before? So this it's a great question because a lot of people in their mind, their psychology, it basically keeps them trapped. And they say, well, I don't have any money or all I have is five or 10 or $50,000. How am I supposed to be free? I had negative money. I literally had $6,000 that I took out as a cash advance. And then I took over a mortgage. And from there I said, well, you know what? I bet I could do a lot of things by solving problems. And so I took over a lot of mortgages. It's called a subject to transaction where you take a, you buy a property subject to the mortgage that's already there. And I was using my brain. Cash makes people stupid. They go, well, I got all this money and if I, I can just do what I want. I can, my money is going to make money. That's kind of true. But usually somebody else has an idea for your money and you have a seminar experience. And I, I, I've seen that time and time again where having money actually makes you dumb and you end up losing it. So I just did a lot of uh, creative financing type of things. And that was probably the first 20 or 30 houses. And then once, once I built a track record of execution, then I had people coming in and saying, hey, I want to be a partner. And so we did more conventional financing. But the first 20 or 30, it was, I literally didn't have any money. So I couldn't really, I couldn't finance something and I couldn't write a check because I didn't have any. And so at the peak, at the top, how leveraged were you? Uh, that was it's actually part of the downfall. I was so leveraged that when there was a tipping point in the, in the economy, uh, I was, I was probably about 80% leveraged. And some of this was development where I was building towers in downtown Alabama and, and remodeling multi million dollar apartments. 
And I didn't have enough room to move on some of these things. And when the banks tightened up and they, they froze credit, I didn't have anywhere to go. And so I had no access to cash. And I kept cycling. It's, it's kind of like the, the person that keeps doubling down because they keep hitting red. And they go red, 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 red. Well, eventually black hits and you're toast. And that's what I did. Um, I just kept that. It was like a $5 million net worth with $20 million in property. And so I just kept it rolling thinking, oh, it's always going to be blue skies. And then 2008 happened and I found that there was a blizzard landing on my head. And then how long till you lost it all? How much longer did it go? It, it, took, it took a year for me to acknowledge it. I mean, it was basically spiraling from 2007 to 2008 and by the end of 2008. So this is interesting how wrong we can be. At the, uh, at the end of 2006, I had, it was either five or seven projects that were each, the pro forma was a million dollars net profit on each one of those. That's what my expect, my expectation was. Within a year, I saw all those projects collapsing and I ended up losing more than a million on each one of them. So, you know, and, and it was all of them. Like it wasn't just one or two. Every single project went upside down the exact amount that I, or more that I thought I was going to make. So that was, uh, that was the universe saying, you're on the wrong track, buddy. Let's do something different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's hard though, right? And, and I think it applies to a lot of our lives where you think you're on a good path or you think you're crushing it, right? And then something happens and, and it's easy to look back and say, oh, well, you know, I should have done that or maybe I should have t- considered this. So how do you recognize and, and manage that risk? You can't. You, um, I, I, and I say that because we don't know what we don't know. This is where mentors and masterminds are so valuable for people that are bald or gray, have been around for decades that are not brand new with, with you. Because if you're, if you're 25 and you've got a bunch of 25-year-old friends, y'all haven't been through anything yet. And as much as you've been through, you've never been through a recession with real money. I mean, th- these are the problems. And, but the solution is truly having people that can see things. Like I can see into the future for most people that come to me and say, I'm doing these investment investments. I can actually ask questions that they wouldn't know to ask. It doesn't mean they don't have the answers. It just means they didn't know the questions to ask. So it's about having other people because there's no way... I, I didn't know what I didn't know back in 2000. And I, I lost millions of dollars because I didn't have the right questions coming out. I could have answered them if I knew the right questions, but my ego was driving me into a place where I thought I knew everything and I clearly did not. So where does somebody start with that? Is it Facebook groups? Obviously, you mentioned masterminds and, and there's groups. Is it is it paying for a coach? How do they know who to find or where to find them? Where do they start with that? The, the best place I like to, to send people is these events. Like I've, I've, um, I'm good friends with Russ Gray and Robert Helms that are the real estate guys, and they have a, an event in the spring and the fall in Dallas. And so people that want to learn investing, that's the, that would be the place I would send them because they're exposed to people that are really doing stuff. There are people with integrity. It's, it's, very, uh, it's, it's a highly vetted community. And simply being in that environment, their head and their brain and their mind are going to be exposed to people and ideas that they've never had any exposure to. They're naturally going to find the right people to connect with, to create groups, to they'll, they'll end up finding a coach or a mentor that fits. I, I, I think being in an environment like that when you're first starting is powerful because if you say, oh, I've got a real estate group that meets down the street and everybody does house flips, it's pretty narrow when you're first starting out. And that may not be a good fit, but you don't know anything else because you're not exposed to anything else. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And Damien, just out of curiosity, as, as an individual who's been an entrepreneur for, for many, many years, how much time and energy and money do you think you spend on, on developing your own skill set with maybe your own mentors and your own you know, mastermind groups? So I, I did I did the math uh, a while ago, and the number went over a million bucks that I've spent on coaches. And one coach in particular, I, I spent about four hundred thousand dollars over a period of two years with him. And and you know, it question is is it, is it worth it? 
And I, I've gone to, I think, every seminar out there, whether it's Tony Robbins or Robert Kiyosaki's or these things. I've had coaches for years. And the question is, is it worth it for people when they say, well, it's $200 a month or it's in my case, I was spending $10,000 a month for a 30 minute call. Is it worth it? I don't know. When you're making $100,000 a month and you're spending 10,000 for a coach that asks the right questions, is it worth it? I would say yes. So it's, it's really just, it's a, this is back to psychology. I've spent the money and you don't need to spend a million dollars, but you're going to spend money because you will pay attention to things that you pay for. That's why you pay for them. Free things you don't really pay attention because what's the, what's the pain? There's no pain. You don't pay attention. Doesn't matter, but you pay for it. There's actually, a, there's a nudge because you've actually traded something that you've, you've created with your sweat and your blood and you want to get value out of that exchange. Yeah, I totally think that's a, an interesting, you know, comment that you make there when we exchange something of value, you know, whether it's money or, or, or time or blood, sweat and tears, whatever you want to call it, then we pay attention and we kind of step up like, all right, now I'm going to listen. I'm going to do something. I'm going to take action. I'm going to do these things. I know you've been around a lot of entrepreneurs being an entrepreneur yourself and, and entrepreneurs are typically not the greatest investors. Why is that? It's a different skill set. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons it's one, it's actually sort of funny. I, I see a lot of these snap millionaires over in, in Santa Monica that exited out of Snapchat and they've got $20 million and they all think that they're investors now. They think they're angels. They are until they're broke because they're, they're using the same skill set of, of creation versus, versus nurturing. When you're doing a startup, when you're doing a, a new business, very different skill set than managing and looking at risk mitigation and spreading things out. For example, when you have a business, you tend to have all your eggs in that one thing and you're all in because if you're not, nobody's going to pay attention and you're never going to get traction. Once you're an investor, you have to be smart about position sizing, how much is actually going to be in something, expectation of timeframes. It's a totally different skill set that people aren't trained on, which is why most people that build a business and then sell it end up losing their money on the thing that they invest in because they have no skill set and they think, I'm so smart. I did a business and therefore I don't need other people to tell me how to invest. And then they learn the hard way. So it is a different skill set. And unfortunately, most people are, are too arrogant after they exit something to say, I need help. Yeah, when when does one want to start developing that kind of skill set as an investor? Is it long before they maybe sell a company or is it after they sell a company? When would you recommend somebody trying to develop that skill set? One of the cool things is if you're if you're using if you're building your business with the the mindset of of an investor and an entrepreneur, it means that you're going to be doing things like tracking numbers in a professional way. Uh, the I have a book coming out in early 2019 called Unicornomics, and it's how to build a billion dollar company and the and the baseline of the, the foundation of all the things that are involved. And it's it's from the perspective of what it would take for you to exit and sell it sell a billion dollar company, what venture capitalists are looking for, or the the public markets. And if you build a business with that mindset, you're actually developing the skills at the same time because it's a professional approach to investing. And so you can, I think you have to do it in the beginning. Otherwise, like a great example, Bob Parsons, who you may be familiar with, he started GoDaddy, which is like the biggest domain seller in the world. And he messed up when he first started. He didn't, he didn't use the foundational principles inside of Unicornomics. And when he went to sell GoDaddy, it took him it took him like 4 or 5 years longer because he had to redo so much of his initial filing stuff and his paperwork and he wasn't looking at it as a as a an investor he was looking at it as an entrepreneur so i say from day 1 it's really important to have somebody on your team helping you navigate and become a better investor as you're an entrepreneur yeah, I agree. And and to be continually learning, right? I think education plays a huge piece in that. And, and whether that's paying for a coach or a mentor or just reading yourself, books, you know, podcasts, whatever, it's something to keep you you're learning and, and keep going. 
Yep. So totally agree. what's your view on retirement and this fire movement that's kind of taken popular in the personal financial space? I, I think it's interesting, but it also kind of reminds me of a girl that I met about 15 years ago that I met at a seminar and six months later, I, I called her and I said, what's going on? She was learning how to, to buy property and be an investor. She said, I'm, I'm retired. And I said, really? You know, you were making 150,000 bucks a year working for Chevron and you're retired. She goes, yep. I go, how did that happen? She goes, well, I bought a rental property and I'm making about $600 a month. And I said, yeah. And she goes, and I moved back in with my parents and my expenses are only $600. So I'm free. And I said, oh, so what I would <laughs> say to her now is you're free from what? Like you, to me, you're, you're stuck in a really crappy life and you're definitely not on purpose. The reason I think that the fire movement and these, these other things that where people, different versions of retirement are so dangerous is because they're thinking about retiring and they're stopping their contribution in many cases. It doesn't mean everybody is, but a lot of times they go, Oh, I'm just going to play now. You're, we aren't meant to just play. We're meant, and people look at work as a four letter word, like it's bad. And the problem is we're not doing work that's part of our purpose. And it's when you have that, you get lost in the work. And, and then all of a sudden, you're not trying to think about when you're going to retire. You're saying, I don't want to stop this thing because I love this. My work is my play. My play is my work. It's so cool. That's purpose. This is very different than passion, by the way. Passion, I mean, people say, well, are you talking about passion? And I say, no. I mean, if, if you're talking about passion, I can show you a lot of people that are running enthusiastically in the wrong direction. That's passion. That doesn't mean you're actually on purpose. It just means you're really excited. But you may just be going in a circle or you may be running off a cliff with a pair of scissors. So, I mean, who knows? I just think that retirement is very dangerous because it tends to say we're done. We tend to believe that we're done. And there's a reason that the average male in the United States is dead three years after they retire because the universe is basically done with them. They're consuming resources and they have no mental engagement. In many cases, that's a death sentence. Yeah, I've, I've talked to some people that instead of retirement, they say refocus and, and they kind of take that money and they start something else or they start a company or they buy real estate and, and maybe they shift from what their day job was, but they're finding something else to spend their time and focus their energy on. I, I love that. I, I love the focus. I, I just unfortunately see a lot of people, one of my very close friends 20 years ago that I met, loved his work. He was he worked at, at the GM Proving Grounds where he was basically modifying their Corvettes with toaster ovens to figure out how he could give them an extra few horsepower. I mean, this guy had the best job. It was so fun. And then he retired and I watched him health-wise just degrade. And I, I looked at him and it was because he, I mean, he even ended up with cancer, unfortunately, this year. And I, I was like, he doesn't have anything that he really cares about. He's basically just sitting there waiting, kind of like my dad did. Eventually, he just sort of didn't have anything to do. And all of a sudden, ca cancer and dead. Like, it sucks. Hmm. Yes. So I guess on that note, right, a lot of us work a lot or spend time with our family and we have other responsibilities, whether that's church or community. And how do you find the balance between everything that's going on in your life? How do you allocate time to each of those things and, and not just give it to the squeaky wheel all the time? It's, it's a, it's a visionary focus that, that, uh, uses seasons. Uh, I, I think it's very dangerous. And I've tried this for a long time to figure out the perfect formula, the perfect ratio of time every day or every week around my, my, my family, my friends, my finances, my, my fitness, my spiritual life. And it becomes very, very painful trying to keep everything in, in a proper uh, space. So what I've decided instead is that just like the seasons, there are seasons where I'm hyper-focused on business and there are seasons where it's a winter where I'm backed off and, and I'm focused on other things. So most people would look at that and they'd say, that seems like you're very out of whack. And the truth is I am. Because you're not going to make an impact in most places, especially in business or investing, if you just 
if you if you listen to Tim Ferriss, and I like Tim Ferriss a lot, but if you say, I'm going to spend four hours a week on my X part of my life, and I, are you really going to have the best business if you spend four hours on it? Probably not. And if you, if you have a close relationship, maybe you're married, and you say, well, I'm going to spend five minutes a day with my spouse, I'm not sure that that's going to be a, a sustainable uh, relationship. So I like seasons. I like to do it that way. Um, some people are going to say, I want to do it every day. I just think seasons works really well because you can really focus and focus is where it's all at. Awesome. Awesome. So what do you think going back, we mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, financial freedom. So what is that? What's financial freedom to you? To, to, to me, it's a simple, it's a simple concept that is all about confidence. It's a, it's our ability to adapt because we trust ourselves. And I see a lot of people and I work with, with a lot of people that have some skills. They've read some books, they've gone to seminars, but they don't really believe yet because they don't have the muscle. It's like they look at the gym and they go, yep, I, I, yep, I can, I can see that. I understand the process, but they haven't actually lifted any weights. And so they basically have this little Pee Wee Herman body and they think they, they have a vision of themselves as Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the truth is you have to go into the gym and lift the weights. And that's the process of going through the work. So confidence comes from that exercise. It's, it's never going to be about cash. People come to me all the time with two, three, four million dollars in the bank. 40, 50 years old, and they are scared to death and they are not free. And most of most listeners, I would say, would probably say, well, if I had two or three million dollars, I'd be good. And, I, and my answer is no, you wouldn't. You'd be scared because if somebody took it, you would not know how to fix it. And the people that have that kind of money, here's the dangerous part. They've built it up over 20 or 30 years in their brain somewhere. They know that they don't have another 20 or 30 years to make it again based on how they did it before. So they're scared and they're playing not to lose. So the confidence is understanding that you can create it out of thin air, just like I did in the early 2000s, because it's in your brain. It's not in your checkbook. It's literally what you can create and you're, you're trusting yourself to do it. Yeah. So how do they go about planning for, for that, right? If they say, Hey, I'm going to retire, right? If that's the word they're going to use and, and have $2 million and, you know, the 4% rule and blah, blah, blah. How did, what's your advice to them in saying, well, wealth creation and how do they know that's going to last? And, you know, what if the economy drops and they're invested in the stock market? What's the advice there? So the, the primary thing that I would say to people is if your money is in somebody else's hands, you're never going to be free. You've got, because nobody's going to care about your money more than you, and you're never going to feel confident that it's going to last. Uh, the, the idea that there's a 4% rule or that there's these other rules that are going to work consistently, uh, it's, it's bogus. Those are somebody else's rules based on a system to sell people mutual funds and annuities. The truth is, if you spend time building the muscle, you should be making double-digit returns the rest of your life consistently, safely, on time every year. And that's something that you can create, but you're not going to get somebody. Somebody's not going to hand that to you. And so I, I think there has to be a shift to where you go, okay, I can create money out of thin air. It's Because truly, money does grow on trees. People say it doesn't, and, and I, I, I disagree. I mean, I've, I've, I've basically created trees out of nothing and then have them grow money and it's because i decided i was going to go do it i did the work and you can too i mean i have a high school education this is not something that you need a phd or an mba to do it's about saying i'm going to spend the time required to build the understanding and the experience it doesn't it's also a timing thing i'll give you an example of of a, a gal that came to me about probably 12 or 13 years ago and she said i want to be financially free and i said okay tell me about that she said i want to have five or $6,000 a month. And I said, okay, doable. What are you starting with? She said 50,000. I said, okay, we can work with that. What's your time frame? She said six to 12 months. I said, good luck. You're going to have a seminar. You and your 50,000 are going to split ways. You're in a part company. 
and you're not going to be free. You're going to be really, you're going to be flattened because the compression of time didn't allow her for the natural lag to happen. And that's what people have to understand. There's a lag. There isn't a single person that can come to me and, and say, here's my situation that I can't get financially free within five years. There is no situation that I can't make that happen with them if they're willing to do the work. So it's really just a time thing. It's not 20 years and it's not six months. I mean, I really like the the way that you talk about building this muscle. Is it too late for somebody to develop that muscle, maybe 50, 60 years old? And if so, what do we do as a country and a community to try to get people to build that muscle at an earlier age? I think we have to stop coddling people. We have to let people stub their toes. There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's been a lot of helicopter parenting, which has given a lot of people the wrong outlook on life to where they think that everything should be protected. And, you know, there's, I read an article recently about parents that on average were not letting their kids go outside until they were 14 to 16 years old by themselves. And I just thought, you gotta be kidding me. I was out like at five years old and I was getting lost and I had the police taking me home and like all this chaos. And so as a society, what we have to be willing to do is let our, let the kids learn through experience. And then we have to really, really start pushing the idea of self-responsibility. This whole idea there's so many things going on right now that are about blaming different movements, whether it's Me Too or these different things, and people are pointing fingers. What I don't see in all of these things, not to say that any of these movements are bad, I don't see the responsibility. I don't see self-responsibility. That's the single most important thing that we can have in our lives, self-responsibility, where we own our lives. And it doesn't mean that we say, okay, you know what? I, I deserve to get raped, and I, that's me. What it says is you're going to choose how you react to it. It's That's the choice that we have to be willing to make. The moment we're a victim is the moment we have no control of, over our lives. And so it doesn't matter whether we're 20 or 30 or 50 years old. The moment we take responsibility and say, it's my life, it's my choice, it's my responsibility, that's the moment that we can change things if we're willing to commit and do the work. So it doesn't matter how old we are. We just have to shift into self-responsibility and everything else changes. Let's just shift gears here just a second and talk about your company and your books coming out and kind of what you do now to kind of help people build these muscles and get well on their way to grow on their wealth. Well, the, the primary f- focus that I found was if people need, they need esoteric, they need stuff in the woo, and they also need practical understanding, things they, they can touch and feel. So I work on both of them. The primary business is about giving people control of their their 401ks and their IRAs, where they literally have control, where they can go and invest. They can invest in real estate. They can invest in small companies. They can invest in physical gold. I like that because it gives somebody something that they can actually do today, like they can actually run with, and it forces them to own it. So it's, I, I think one of the, the the dumb things out there is all these people that are pitching things where you buy this thing and everything's going to be good, but there's no learning involved. There's no muscle being built. With what I'm doing, this tool that people have, it's called the EQRP, that tool gives people a chance to build a muscle. And so everything I do is about building the muscle and helping people become confident. So ultimately they don't need me. I don't like a business, whether it's coaching or financial advising, where somebody is always going to need me. I want somebody to not need me. I want somebody to feel empowered and strong and confident that they can walk out and they can adapt to anything. So everything that I do is based on building that skill set and that mindset and that, that muscle inside of somebody. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and I love what you said about the personal responsibility, right? I think all of us need to to understand that things happen for us instead of to us and kind of making that change and saying, okay, something bad happened. And obviously, you know, there's horrible things, but, but a lot of it is saying, Hey, how can I turn this? How can I make this a good thing? Um, I I recently listened to an, 
an episode with with someone that talked about how their father died and they said gosh how could this be a good thing right but but they became closer with their siblings they became closer with their mom and and all those things had kind of been pushed down pushed off during the year but when this happened it kind of forced them to redevelop those relationships and and he as a father changed with his kids and said you know i'm going to pass away sometime you know potentially soon and i want to have the best relationship i can with my kids so I think a lot of it is is shifting the mindset and saying, okay, what can I learn and and how can I continually grow when something bad happens in my life? That that's that that's a huge thing that's hard for people. I I mean, similar experience when when my father passed away four years ago, and almost five now, and the the a lot of my family completely fell apart, and they they interpreted that event totally different. I looked at that, and and my final conversation with my dad a couple months before he died was where he looked at me and he said. God, there were so many things that I wanted to do. And he knew he didn't have any time. He was out of time. So I was experiencing regret face to face with my father. It, I don't know that it gets more intense than that. That pushed me and it, it kind of snapped me. It broke me a little too. It also gave me an inspiration to do something different and, and to focus on a life where looking back, I was not going to stub it, stumble into the man that I could have been. I was literally going to take my last breath going, that was spectacular and I have nothing left because I did it. I lived completely. That was the point of, of that conversation to me. And I, so I took it differently. I didn't say, oh, poor dad. I said, I'm going to do better. You, you are inspiring me as much as this hurts me. And so it's how we interpret these things like you guys are saying that really changes everything, whether we're going to be a victim or whether we're going to do something and it's going to push us forward into a better place. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do though, right? I mean, a lot of us are, are working or people in this fire movement say, hey, you know, I'm going to get there in 15 years, right? When I hit my $2 million. And, but I think we need, all of us probably need to do a better job of enjoying the journey to, to reaching some of these bigger goals that we have. That, 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 that was one of the things that really hit me. I, there were so many years where, where my dad talked about going to Africa and Italy. He was, he's 100% Sicilian and never went. He was always, he always lived on the island of someday, you know, someday I'll this and that. And instead of doing that, my suggestion is book your life now. If there's something that matters, book it. I've been on trips with people that are 60 and 70 years old that can barely function. And it's, it's sad. Like, why are we waiting? Because, because why? I mean, like, really, what is the reason? We're waiting to do these things, to live this life until the moment when we have X number of dollars in the bank. To me, that's a stupid way to get to a place where you're going to go, I wish I could do these things, but I'm out of time. So I think we need to start booking our life now and not waiting for that someday. Mm. Yeah, I think it's great advice. So thoughts on the future here, just shifting gears a little bit. What's your mindset on, the, on maybe this upcoming recession in real estate and, and what should people be thinking about or do to prepare if they have a lot of real estate holdings? The, the, the thing that I would suggest people do is ask yourself when the recession happens. And I, I was talking with with Doug Duncan or uh, D- uh, yeah, Doug Duncan, who's the chief economist for Fannie Mae, which is basically the, the institution that does all the lending for single family houses pretty much in the United States. And he said, we will be in a recession in Q3 or Q4 of 2019, for sure. And his numbers, he's he's always right. So ask yourself, whatever you're doing or you're about to do, is it recession-proof or can it survive the recession? So I love real estate. I just don't like speculation. And uh, you guys may have heard, a lot of people have heard of Kenny McElroy, who is Robert Kiyosaki's real estate guy. And he, t- he had a recent post where he was talking about cash flow versus capital gains. When you focus on capital gains, you're a speculator and you're a crazy person to me. If you're focusing on cash flow and it's sustainable for a recession, whether it's an apartment that will make sense no matter what's happening, then you're, you're an investor. And if you're a smart investor and you've got people asking tough questions about what will happen to your property, 
in a downside downside event, then I think you're you're going to be fine. I was not of that mindset back in 2006 and seven. I was speculating like nobody's business, and I had the whole weight of the whole you know the the universe land on me. It was like a 747 parked itself on my mind, um, and I couldn't get it off. It was just it, it crushed me. So I it's it's really about looking into the future and saying if if my property if the rents go down 20%, if I, if I lose occupancy and I'm down from 95 down to 80, like asking these hard questions because we are in a crazy bull market and this thing is tired and it is going to shift. So when it does, can you sustain it? And that goes back to our, our conversation about mentors and coaches and learning, right? I mean, all those things are, are something that you could bounce off of somebody who's had a little bit more experience or to read a book or to, you know, stay up on some blogs or websites or something to develop your understanding and your learning and, and to stay on top of what your personal investments are in. Yeah. And, and here's a, something that I've, I've found what most people will Google. And the problem with Google is there's a lot of baloney that is out there. And you got to be really careful about the information. I get people coming to me and going, well, I read this and it's, it's different than what you said. And I, and I'll say, well, have you actually looked at say the IRS code? And they go, well, no. And I say, well, why don't you look at the source? And you realize that there's a lot of people making stuff up. I, I, I think it's important for the source. And this is where people that have actually done real estate, for example, I've got people that are talking about their real estate investing. And I say, well, when did you start? And they go 2012. And I go, oh, so your entire experience is during a bull market. You have no experience going through anything other than a bull. And they think that they're brilliant. And I say, yeah, me too. I thought the same thing in 2005, but I had no experience going through a recession. So making sure that you're around people that have actually gone through cycles. I mean, it's crazy if you think about most of the people that are managing money on Wall Street are under 30. So they didn't experience the last correction. And that's how most people are, are looking out for advice. They're looking to people that really haven't gone through stuff. I would always make sure I have people around me that are balder and grayer than me that have been through things at least 10 or 20 years before me so that they can give me perspective. Otherwise, I'm going to miss things that are repeating over and over because everything cycles. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And, and laws change and, and politics sway side to side. And so things are going to get different. So are you personally building back up your real estate portfolio? I am. I'm doing it differently this time. Um, and and I, I'm doing it differently where there's a lot more teams, there's a lot more systems, and the numbers are bigger because there's not, it, it's fascinating. There's a house and an apartment are basically the same thing. It's it's a thing that provides housing for somebody else. An apartment requires sophistication and a team. Anybody can get away with a house. I think a lot of people are scared of building a team. They're, they're scared of bigger numbers, but the truth is you're doing the exact same thing. So I just like things that when I had 150 houses all over the country, that's literally one apartment now. So I like things that are bigger that can be professionally managed. I'm not really that interested in in individual houses. It's just an easier entry point for most people. But it's a very unsophisticated thing, which is why it's so hard to get financing uh, on rental property that's individual houses. It's a very different world when you go into apartments. So I have a different focus now than I did back then. And I'm also looking at, at other things like assisted care facilities because the entire population is aging. And that is not going to stop. That silver tsunami of people. Like I spent a lot of time with Gene Garino with his trainings around the Residential Assisted Living Academy because he's teaching what people need to to know to invest in that space. And that space is absolutely recession-proof. So I like that. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense for me, knowing that 70, 80 million baby boomers are are your your population base that are going to be funding this investment. So Damien, what last advice do you give for, for our listeners or someone who's trying to grow their portfolio, whether that's in real estate or you know small business or in the markets? What can they do now and, and what should they really be focusing on? 
Well, I'll, I'll end with a, with a story that will give you the, the advice that I'm going to share. And the story is that I mentioned in the beginning that I started off in Alaska dodging polar bears, literally out of the back door of this oil camp. There were polar bears that I had to dodge and, and not get eaten because polar bears will eat you if you move and you're close enough. And when I was in Africa, there were the people before us, the week before us had been out on safari and they, they decided to get out and line up. This one lady got out, lined up the, the tiger or the lion cubs so that she'd have a better picture because they were all scattered. And while she was out there out of her Jeep, mama came over and killed her. So I, 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 I share these stories because unless you're in Africa or Alaska and you've got bears or lions, the likelihood of you being eaten by a mistake is zero. And the problem is we still think in our brain, our, our amygdala is still afraid that making a mistake is going to result in us being dead. So understand that if I was to give myself advice 20 years ago, it would be fail faster and make those mistakes because that's where you're going to grow. Whatever you're doing, you're not going to be eaten by anything. You will grow and you'll be stronger, more confident and more free the more mistakes you make. It's just money and it's made up out of thin air. And when you totally buy into that, you realize, okay, my job is to learn by making mistakes, by going out there and doing things, not sitting there hiding behind a computer or just reading a book, but actually doing things. That's where the muscle is. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and we interviewed Robert Kiyosaki a few weeks ago, and then something, the same thing he said is jump in, you know, get started and and start investing, start doing something, right? And, and if you make mistakes or you fail, that's okay. Like you'll get back up and, and you'll keep going. So Damien, where can people find you? Where can people get a hold of you? Best place to visit me is DamienLupo.com. You'll see the projects I'm working on and you can get a, you can get a copy of, of Reinvented Life or the QRP book, whatever is resonating with you. So I would just go visit, visit the site and, and engage and you'll, you'll see a whole bunch of money tools, psychology tools that will really help you start your, your path and your process of building confidence, which is really where all that freedom is going to, is going to be found. Awesome. So again, that's Damien Lupo, entrepreneur, investor, advisor. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you guys. Thanks, Damien. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.